You are listening to National Security Law Today. Technology obviously is really changing. And sometime back, for example, we were having a conversation on this podcast about the Carpenter opinion and some of the things that the Supreme Court justices had written in their various opinions. Some of the facts were kind of interesting because arguably they could have events, you know, some lack of understanding of technology operates. And they also focused pretty exclusively on third-party doctrine. But I do wonder whether or not that decision would have been the same if it was clear that Carpenter had ceded his location to, say, 32 apps on his phone with maybe 20, at least 20 or 25 different developers. I wonder if it could really be fairly said under the Fourth Amendment that he really did have an expectation of privacy at that point. But I'd like to get your opinion on this, that technology is vastly outpacing the law. The law feels glacial. I do feel that in the area of privacy in particular, sometimes I I detect during these hearings that maybe there's a lack of understanding by certain members that Congress itself is having a hard time keeping up. I'd like to sort of get your opinion on that and what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think just to go back to what you said about the Carpenter case, I, this is exactly the question that I posed to my students, exactly as you put it. So Carpenter obviously had was dealing with cell site location information, and, and there were statements, which, by the way, I think the, that opinion is very well written. I think Justice Roberts did a fantastic job of legal craftsmanship with that opinion. But there, but there are aspects in that opinion that, that say, hey, you know, People just don't realize that your phone is in communication with these cell towers. Who knows about cell towers? This stuff is just not in the public consciousness. And so that was an element of the analysis, not the only element. But it's very different, as you point out, if you specifically, not even in the background, the app is keeping track of your location. But you are using, for example, you know, a map location, a map app where you have explicitly said, yes, I want you to know, tell me precisely where I am in relation to where I want to go. And I want you to keep track of my movements as I go from point A to point B. I explicitly consent for you to do that. And I know a third party has that information. So it's a very interesting, I think, angle. And and it's true of all these apps that we have. And it's just ironic that the more we learn about how these technologies work and yet continue to use them, the more we potentially put at risk an argument that we have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Our education of, our, of, of the public in this regard, unless something is done about it, is actually potentially eroding those kinds of arguments going forward. But yeah, so the, the phenomenon that you're talking about is one that I very much observe. I view it as, the way I refer to it as, is old rules applied to new tools. Technology is going to continue to advance in ways that we cannot anticipate. You know, and so even the inventors of some of the new technologies don't anticipate that their technology is going to have the impact that it has or will be used in the way that they now see it being used, right? It's going to have these unanticipated consequences and it's going to go in different directions and other people will innovate based on prior innovations. And, and that's great. That's fantastic. I mean, the world we're living in now, just even 10 years ago, we didn't have some of these things and the students that I teach get very tired of me talking about things like fax machines and trying to explain in detail what a fax machine is. Um, so it's impossible for a policymaking process to keep up. Congress is, you know, say what you will about Congress, it's just not a nimble organization. It's not meant to be nimble, right? So it's not going to keep up in the way that we would need for a detailed set of rules to keep up. 
And then once Congress is seized of something and decides to enact legislation, it could take not only it could take years for that for that bill to make its way through all the various committees and go through all the various hearings and come out through its various permutations. And there's no guarantee that they will have gotten the law, they've gotten the technology right. They, 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 may, they may not have understood the technology properly. And in any event, the technology may have changed in the, in the intervening two years. It's no longer the thing to regulate fax machines. That's no longer important. And yet we now have a fax machine law. I'm just making that up, obviously. So I think there will always be a gap. And what, what I find really fascinating is like, well, what, what do lawyers do? when you have a gap in the law, right? What do you do? You're trying to keep your company out of trouble. You're trying to support your company as it innovates responsibly while not exposing itself to legal risk. You are going to come up with your own interpretations of what the current state of the law is. You're gonna reason by analogy. You're gonna use metaphors. You're gonna say, well, is it like a postcard? Is it like a, is it like a sealed envelope? Is it like a fax machine? What is it? Is it like a videotape? You know, you're going to try to find analogies and then come up with approaches that you think are defensible given the state of the law. And where does that happen? Where where are lawyers having those thoughts and where and how does that impact our, the reality in which we all deal? Well, of course, your listeners and you all know that national security lawyers do this. So we're always looking at case law that applies in the Fourth Amendment context or other contexts or reasoning by analogy. And we're trying to think how does it apply to the national security activity we're dealing with. But the other place that I think is really interesting where this is happening is that the big companies themselves, as they design and develop and roll out new services, and there aren't specific statutes that apply directly to that kind of service, there may well be general statutes that apply, of course, but there are, there are to some degree, there's going to be a gap. Those lawyers working with their clients in those companies are what I think of is that they're making policy. So when you're looking at policymakers, you have to include the tech companies. For, let's take end-to-end encryption as an example. The companies are going to make the call on whether or not end-to-end encryption is going to be something that they roll out. They're going to consider, consider a lot of different factors, but there is no statute in the United States on this right now. And I don't know if one is on the horizon. People have different guesses about what Congress is going to do. In the meantime, these companies are going to do something. So they're going to make the call. And and the call that they make is going to establish the reality on the ground that we're all going to deal with. They will have made policy and they will have implemented that policy. And that policy will be the new default in terms of the technology that we're using more and more in our daily lives. And so I think that can be a good thing. I think that companies have been showing a great deal of sensitivity and awareness, and they want to be good corporate citizens. They want to, they don't, they do not want to be in a position where Congress is going to enact something that will invalidate their business model. So they have a strong incentive to figure out what is the best approach forward. And I think, you know, as I tell my students, it's actually an exciting place to work, in my opinion, if you can help make policy at that level. Yeah, I and and separate and apart from that, they will. The reality is, they wield tremendous influence. So you do want good lawyers in that in those companies and directing things the best way they can. But let's jump back for just a second. We all those companies, and we're talking about you know Congress maybe talk about the EU member states being comprised of twenty six different cultures 
and countries. Congress is highly divided right now. But in any event, I want to go back for a second. You were in DNI when the leak with Snowden happened. We have today a case out of the EU, which is not just Schrems, but Schrems too, which could drastically affect what happens to major companies as well as obviously would have a secondary impact on the intelligence community that would be massive. Do you draw a line from Snowden to Schrems too? Yeah, absolutely. So the Snowden disclosures happened in the summer of 2013. And right around the Snowden disclosures, there was uh, media reporting. It was it was a huge furor, as we all remember. I mean, it was a traumatic moment, I think, for the intelligence community, for people, lawyers working in the national security area. Uh, your friends and family may have been reading these stories. I certainly had that happen to me, where very close uh, family friends would come up to me and say, you know, what is the NSA doing listening to my phone calls? And I said, I thought you were the civil liberties protection officer, Alex, you know, what have you been doing? And I'm like, they aren't listening to your phone calls. This is just not correct. It's just not what is actually happening. Not to say that it wasn't, you know, there were some legitimately shocking things. So the bulk surprising things to the public, the, the, the bulk collection program that had been approved by the FISA court was a legitimately surprising thing for the public to hear about, particularly in that way. Among the people who reacted very strongly were our European partners, where they felt very much that the NSA and other elements of the intelligence community, but primarily this was directed at NSA, were scooping up data of ordinary Europeans, as well as European leaders who were close allies of the United States, and dealing with it in a way that did not seem to have any protections, particularly for Europeans, for people who weren't United States persons, a US person being an American citizen, a lawful permanent resident, a U.S. corporation, or an unincorporated association substantially composed of citizens and residents. So if you're not a U.S. person, they felt that there weren't specific protections for their data. So there was a big furor. And at the time, European uh, U.S. companies with operations in Europe were bringing data back to the United States under an arrangement called Safe Harbor. Back in 1995, I think it was, the European Union issued a directive for to protect data in the European Union. This was the Data Protection Directive. Under that directive, companies couldn't take data. This is the predecessor to GDPR. Companies couldn't take data out of Europe unless they were taking it to somewhere that had adequate safeguards, ad, that, that adequately protected the data. In other words, you can think of it as an, a protective bubble that, that was wrapped around the data. So if you wanted to take data from Europe to the United States, you had to have a, you had to assure the European regulators that the data was going to be protected in a comparable way to how it was protected in Europe. And so to do that, Department of Commerce entered into an arrangement with the European Commission, and at the time it was called the Safe Harbor. So this was entered into in 2000. And under the Safe Harbor, companies could promise to do certain things to protect the privacy of Europeans in the United States. And so they certified that they followed the safe harbor. This, this held from 2000 to 2015. So what happened was when the Snowden disclosures came out, they initiated a case, a, Schrems, a, a law student in Austria by the name of Max Schrems initiated a case against Facebook. And that case went up to the Court of Justice of the European Union. And the Court of Justice of the European Union in the first Schrems ruling invalidated the safe harbor, basically said that when the safe harbor was entered into, the European Commission, when it entered into the safe harbor, did not adequately review U.S. national security authorities and how U.S. national security 
agencies could access European data. So they invalidated the safe harbor. This was, again, coming out of the furor of the Snowden disclosures. And in fact, the uh, advocate general opinion, uh, a supporting opinion for the court, specifically referred to media reporting that came out of the Snowden disclosures. So coming out of that ruling, invalidating safe harbor, the the United States and the European Commission negotiated at a feverish pace very intensively and came up with a new arrangement called Privacy Shield. So Privacy Shield, and I like the terms here, safe harbor, you picture, oh, the US corporations are seeking safe harbor from European privacy regulation. But with Privacy Shield, it's, it's now there's a shield against U.S. intelligence activities, right? So we're protecting privacy with a shield from U.S. intelligence activities. It's interesting, the, the visual image. Superhero metaphors. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Privacy Shield was put in place. And, and by the way, following the Snowden disclosures, President Obama issued Presidential Policy Directive 28, which extended certain privacy protections to people regardless of nationality during our signals intelligence activities. And we also initiated a very proactive and coordinated transparency strategy, an attempt to really enhance transparency in the intelligence community while still protecting sources and methods. So that was all part of this Privacy Shield framework that was approved by the European Commission in 2016. The case you're talking about, so Schrems then sues uh, again to challenge the transfers, of a different kind of transfer to the United States. And the Court of Justice of the European Union in 2020 came out with a ruling invalidating Privacy Shield. And it did so not because of some technical problem or defect in Privacy Shield itself, but it did so very explicitly focusing on how the US intelligence community accesses data from private sector companies through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Section 702 in particular, and um, and also through EO 12333. So now there are various ways that companies can take data back out of the European Union. You mentioned derogations. There are other mechanisms that are specifically outlined in, under GDPR, not just an arrangement like Privacy Shield. But the, again, the invalidation of Privacy Shield wasn't based on some technical defect in that document itself, but rather on our law, on our laws. And so our laws apply to companies that do business in the United States, regardless of whether they bring data here, under whatever mechanism they bring data here, they're still subject to our laws. And so it's created this situation where the US is now in discussions with the European Commission, trying to figure out what action can the government take to address the concerns raised by the Court of Justice of the European Union about how our laws work. And obviously the first tranche of effort is around, is there anything the president can do without going to Congress? Not that we're scared of going to Congress or anything like that, but but obviously Congress takes longer to act, right? And, and the con- Congress will act as it sees fit. It, it is not subject to a negotiated solution. It is not subject to the president, what the president you know wants it to do. It is an independent, co-equal branch of government, and it will do as it sees fit. So yes, you could go to Congress and that would be something that uh, may indeed happen. But initially you're trying to figure out under U.S. law, it just becomes a fascinating issue for national security lawyers, right? Under U.S. law, what flexibility does the president have to make binding commitments to protect privacy in an enhanced way to further clarify protections that are available to people regardless of nationality when we access data under FISA or under other authorities? That's where we are. If a solution cannot be reached, 
the logical next step would be for the regulators in Europe, they're called supervisory authorities or data protection authorities. They're at each member state. They enforce GDPR. Their next step would be to actually order the cessation of data transfers from the entity in Europe to an entity in the United States. So they could go after these big tech companies or any other company that is doing business in Europe and the United States that is in both places. And so there's a data transfer. Now there are ways for a company to be able to argue, to be able to, to assess its data transfer situation and say, look, we're not subject to FISA 702. That's for electronic communication service providers. We're not an electronic communication service provider. We don't deal with uh, data, the kind of data that the intelligence community is remotely interested in. There is an opening in how SHREMS 2 has been interpreted for companies to make that case. So that is still a possibility. But for the companies that are squarely within the ambit of FISA Section 702, they're faced with the potential that the data flow will actually be cut off. That has huge implications for their companies. It could also have implications for us in terms of national security. To the extent FISA 702 is one of our most valuable national security authorities, which the president, various presidents have said, how would that impact the use of that authority, including to protect European security? Because a lot of the value from these tools is the value that we share with our allies, our closest friends and allies, especially those in Europe. Yeah, that's a good point. You'd like to believe that something could be worked out since obviously they gain a benefit from 702. But let's talk about the, you've mentioned briefly though, that there are going to be massive, potential massive consequences for big tech and the intelligence community. What do you see going forward in terms of any changes in Europe, in the United States, in terms of the law beyond some sort of a a workout with the Europeans through the president. I would argue for what it's worth that he probably does have fairly expansive authority under Article 2 of the Constitution. And, you know, there certainly is a a lot you can mine the Federalist Papers for, including a description of him as being, you know, chief organ of foreign affairs, if arguably that is it. I mean, certainly this is a, a diplomatic issue at this point, but hopefully something can be worked out. But let's look forward for just a minute, because you've been thinking and functioning in this space for so long. I imagine you have a few predictions, and we're not going to hold you to them. Okay, (laughs) no money wagers. But what do you see happening going forward in technology and national security law as we have this sort of global tension over privacy? Well, I think I do see a lot, notwithstanding the current debate between the U.S. and the European Union, I do, I do see a lot of positive signs. I think this whole conversation that we're having right now about national security and privacy is one that I'm now seeing happen increasingly around the world. I went to Brussels in January 2014 to give a talk. I was on a panel with a bunch of EU regulators. I had agreed to this <laughs> praying that PPD-28 would be out by then because it was after the Snowden disclosure. So I knew I was getting getting myself into a, a very uh, challenging situation. PPD-28 is the Presidential yeah, so Policy the, Directive. Yeah, Presidential Policy Directive 28, which was the one that President Obama issued in January 2014, just a week before, or even just a few days before I was to speak on the panel. I'm sure that I, I'm not suggesting that my panel had anything to do with President Obama's timing for the signature, but I was very grateful that it came out. That was the directive that said we are going to protect 
privacy of people's data with regardless of nationality. And so that enabled me on the panel to talk about that directive and that commitment. And that was extremely helpful. And that is a very real commitment, a very substantive commitment. But at the time, there were no other panels. There weren't really, there wasn't a lot of discussion at all about how European Union member states protect privacy in the context of their national security activities. By the way, that wasn't lost on any of us. We did notice that. (laughs) We noticed it seemed to be sort of a a one-way criticism, like a dysfunctional relationship or something. Yes. So I think on a, on a country to country level, we have, of course, outstanding close ties and close relationships and, and a very good understanding of how a legal framework has to be set up to protect both privacy and security. So there's a balancing that has to happen. And when you talk to people involved in oversight of national security activities around the world, but, but especially in Europe, it's a very comfortable, familiar conversation because we're all talking about the same issues and the same challenges, we have different ways of doing it because we have different countries and different legal frameworks and different cultures, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't expect the cookie cutter approach. But at the same time, there's a very strong recognition. And now we're starting to see those, I'm starting to see those conversations happen more and more with the data protection, the privacy folks in Europe in the same room as the intelligence, not necessarily intelligence officers, but the people familiar with how national security oversight works in Europe. And those conversations, I think, are so valuable to have and so important. And we're seeing a recognition that this is a challenge that's not unique to the United States. It is unique because we're dealing with a ruling that that the Schrems II court came out with. So that is the law that we have to deal with in Europe, the European law. But this idea that the U.S. is somehow uh, an outlier or uniquely doing things in ways that no other country is doing, I, I don't see that that implication anymore. That certainly felt that way that people were thinking that in the immediate aftermath of the Snowden disclosures. But I see as a very positive sign that there's a greater recognition that we all share the same objectives and the same challenges. In terms of a way forward, I'm optimistic that we will have a more global conversation around how, what are the principles that we can use as like-minded democracies to articulate how governments ought to protect both privacy and security. And I think when you get that high level of understanding about what those principles are, we can then have a more detailed conversation around the kinds of things we're talking about now. So there is a process underway about that in the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, They have had some, a series of sessions trying to figure out whether those high level principles can be established. But in the meantime, we have this EU versus US situation that has to be resolved. I don't know. I don't have a specific prediction. I, like you, think that there's a lot of room for the president to act. He does have a lot of tools that he can use because of our legal framework, as exactly for the reasons you stated, the executive has enormous amounts of authority in the national security arena, authority under law to establish legally binding commitments and figure out the way forward. So I'm optimistic in that regard, but who knows? We'll have to see. Well, it'll be interesting. It does seem like the OECD has got a pretty, we're more robustly, I guess, involved at this point. And they, you know, we did make some big progress last week. So maybe one victory or one sort of breakthrough would lead to another in the way that you described. But Alex, it's so great. I'm really glad that you were here today to talk about all of this. I hope that you'll come back and talk to us again in the future. I just want to thank everybody else for listening. 
and tell you that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to bring you national security law every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. If you have topics that you want us to cover or feedback to give us, you can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. By the way, that's one of the big tech companies. Or you can send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, meaning me today, are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.